0: Now, here's your host, Dr. Irene Conlon.
1: Welcome to the Self-Improvement Show. We're broadcasting today from Fountain Hills, Arizona, a place that I call a little bit of heaven on earth. Uh, it's gorgeous here, and if you're buried with snow, um, I urge you next winter to come and visit us in Fountain Hills, and I don't work for the Chamber of Commerce either. I urge you to go to the Self-Improvement uh, blog.com after the show, the theselfimprovementblog.com. Watch the video made by today's guest and read her bio. I think you'll be so glad you did. It's really quite interesting, quite fascinating. While you're there, look around the blog and let me know what you like and don't like. The blog is for you, and I want to know what you'd like to see there. With the advent of some sophisticated equipment, it's now possible to study the brain in much more detail. And we've seen an explosion of studies that show what the brain does in response to certain stimuli, emotions, thought patterns, and more. We've talked about some of these, like what happens in the brain with meditation and rewiring the brain and and more than that, actually. Today we're going to talk about what happens in the brain when we're infatuated or in love. And I have a lot of people who are excited to hear about this today. Remember the first time you were in love, all you could think of was him or her. Nothing else mattered. You were distracted. One of the Disney shows has a, I can't think of what which one it is, but they're Twitter-pated. And I think that's a good word for it. You forgot things that you should have remembered. You could remember every detail about your beloved, but you couldn't remember where you put your car keys or what was the assignment at school or the project you're working on at work. You've been there. Now science proves that you were right on. You were just doing what you were supposed to do, being in love. Our guest today heads up a study of what happens to the brain when we're in love, and we'll learn just what's going on in there and what we may be able to do to affect it. Dr. Sandra Langeschlag is an assistant professor of the Department of Psychological Sciences at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, and she's the director of the Neurocognition of Emotion and Motivation Lab. How do you like that for a name? Neurocognition of Emotion and Motivation She obtained her PhD in biological and cognitive psychology at the Erasmus University in Rotterdam in the Netherlands. She currently investigates whether love feelings can be increased and decreased using cognitive strategies. Virtually everybody falls in love at least once or thinks they're in love and falling in love has a major impact on people's lives. I'm 80 years old, and it just totally rearranged my whole life. So it's my honor to welcome Dr. Sandra Langeschlok to the Self-Improvement Show. Sandra, welcome.
2: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
1: Oh, I'm absolutely delighted. I think I have had more interest in this show than almost any other. We'll start with a dreaded question. Tell us about yourself. Who is Sandra Langeschlok?
2: So, so you already gave a great introduction, thank you very much. Um, So, yes, I am a a professor uh, and I'm a scientist and I study um, the neurocognition of romantic love. Um, I became interested in this question um, when I was an undergraduate in college. And um, I realized there hasn't been a whole lot of um, research yet on the topic, um, because when I was a student, I always wanted to write papers on um, love in the brain, so I was always looking for research that had been done that I could cite. Um, and then I didn't find a whole lot, so that's when I thought, um, well, why don't I become a scientist and study that um, topic? Um, so I'm very excited to um to be where I'm at, and I'm very honored um, that I can actually study this topic.
1: What kind of preparation can you get in in college courses that prepare you to study love? I would Mm -hmm. assume mainly how to go about doing research. But is there some definitive um, research already done, or you know how how did how did they teach you to study love? I Mm -hmm. guess is my question.
2: Yeah, well, that's a great question. So, um, if you want to study love, you, um, of course, need to know a lot about um, science, like how do you do good science, what what are good research methods. Um, You need to learn a lot about um, statistics, so how can you statistically test your results. Um, And then, of course, you need to know about the topic, so you need to know about love, and I approach love from sort of an angle um, of emotions, so I have taken some classes on emotions um and that I apply to the field of love. Yep.
1: And I hear a little bit of accent. Are you from the Netherlands or you know how did, how did you get yeah. to to the University of Missouri?
2: Yeah. So, so I am from the Netherlands. I got my PhD in Holland and um I moved to the United States about almost 6 years ago. Um, I became a postdoc, so that's a researcher, at the University of Maryland first. I was there for about three years, and then about two and a half, three years ago, I moved to um, St. Louis to become a professor um, at this university.
1: And that's really big. I mean,
2: it, it, when,
1: when you're in, in universities, it's big to become an assistant professor, professor. It's a huge right. honor. Uh, right. Tell us a little bit uh, about the lab. Is this a one-of-the-kind thing? I don't think I've heard of a lab of this sort in other universities. Are you the
2: only one, or are there more? So I'm definitely not the only one that is studying love. Um, There are a lot of social psychologists who study love and who study relationships. Um, And I know of a few other people that study um, love also, like when looking at like brain activation or what happens in the body. Um, so I'm definitely not the only one. I, I don't think there are a lot of people studying the neurocognition of love at this point.
1: Yeah. You would think that w- w- with as much as we see uh, in social media and in movies and music that everybody would want to be studying love. But I guess we kind of take it for granted that we all know what it is. And yet, it may be one of the most difficult words to define that I've ever dealt with. Can, can you, let's, let's define some terms, <laughs> how, do you, how do you define love and
2: what kind of love do you study? Right. Well, so that's a great question and that's actually a very difficult question like you said. Um, so there's no one definition of love that scientists agree on, um, lots of different people have different definitions. Um, the way I define love is um, based on work by Helen Fisher, and she... Um, oh, I love argued... Helen Fisher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so she, she has defined um, love in humans, and she says um, humans actually have three sort of love systems, if you will. Um, the first love system or, or type of love is um, sexual desire or lust, and the second one is infatuation or attraction or passionate love, however you want to call it. And the third one is um, attachment or companionate love. And so I use that framework in my work of these three types of love. Um, and and that, that makes it a little bit easier because, yes, like you said, love is a very broad term and, and hard to define. And you, you've done
1: several studies. Tell, tell us a little bit about what you've done to date and then we're going to talk a little bit more about what you're doing now. Yep. So um,
2: I, I, my studies sort of um, fall into three groups. Um, I have sort of three research lines. Um, the first one is that I've um, studied how love improves cognition. And cognition is basically the way we think. So, for example, attention or memory. Um, and I've shown that people um, that are in love, especially when they are infatuated, um, they have better memory and better attention um, for information that has to do with their beloved. So either pictures of their beloved or words that describe their beloved. Um, and so that's my first research line, how love um, improves cognition. And then can, I, okay, can I ask yeah. you a question about that? Yeah. It, it improves
1: cognition for the beloved, but what does it do with the cognition about everything
2: else? Right. I mean, is well, it exactly. normal to
1: forget everything else? That cognition.
2: Right. You know. Well, so that's my second research line. <laughs> so that is how does love actually hurt cognition? Um, because, yes, yeah, so, so people um, that are in love, they, um, in one of my studies said that uh, they think about their beloved for about 60% of the time that they are awake, which is a lot of time, and it's a lot of time <laughs> yes. and effort not spent on the things that maybe they should have been thinking about, such as their school or their work. Um, and so um, it seems like um, people who are in love are very distracted uh, because they think about their beloved all the time, and now they have trouble focusing on, like, the other things that they should be doing. So that's something I'm, I'm currently studying. So that's the second research line, how, um, how love uh, hurts cognition. And then my third research line is how cognition affects love. So how does the way we think change how we feel? Um, that's also a recent research line. So do you have all of that going on now? Yes, we usually have a lot of studies going on at the same time. Um, Yep. Interesting. Tell us
1: the kind of, I guess, the tools you use in doing this. Uh, I have an idea you do um, MRIs. Uh, I don't know what else you would use to know what's going on in the brain. Tell us a little Mm -hmm. bit about what you use in your your equipment.
2: Right. Um, So I have used fMRI in the past. Um, That's a very big scanner, and you put people in the scanner, and then you can see um, which brain regions are active when you have them do certain tasks or look at certain pictures. Um, I'm currently, unfortunately, not doing that kind of work because... The university that I'm at doesn't have a scanner. It's going to be expensive. It costs millions of dollars to get a scanner. Um, so I'm currently actually trying to obtain money um, through grants so that I can um, buy scanner time at scanners at different universities in town. Um, so this research is very is very expensive, and so I need to um, obtain funding first before I can continue that, um, that work. Um, I do in my lab have uh, what's called an EEG system, um, that is only about $45,000. <laughs> so <cheaper>. Only! <laughs> <laughs> but still very expensive. Um, and it looks like sort of a, a cap, so you put a cap on a participant's head, um, you put a little bit of gel in their hair, and then you can measure their brain waves. And so these brain waves don't really tell us what brain region is active, but they tell us very precisely when something is happening. So there's almost a millisecond precision you can tell that the brain is doing something at a certain millisecond. Um, and it also tells us um, what is going on. So there are different brain waves for different um, uh, cognitive operations. So there's different brain waves for attention or for memory. So we can also sort of tell what is going on. And, and on that we-
1: note, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. it's time oh, for us ahead. to take a break. We're going to talk more about this when we come back. This is Irene Connor. With, with my guest, Sandra Longeschlag, Dr. Sandra Longeschlag, saying, stay tuned. We'll be back with more about love in the brain.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: Many people believe it's a man's place to stay strong no matter what. It's considered weak if you break. Men deal with all kinds of issues, insecurity, fears, and struggles, but there has been no place to turn to until now. Listen for Fundamentals with host Carl Bobo. We provide the support that men need and the guidance they seek. It's an open and honest forum featuring the topics you want to hear about with the answers that you seek. Listen live Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific and 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Empowerment.
1: Welcome back to the Self-Improvement Show. My guest today is Dr. Sandra Longenschlung, who is a researcher at the University of Missouri in St. Louis. She studies the effect of love on the brain. And before the break, we were talking about the equipment that she needs, uh, that she uses. Uh, She was telling us about her EEG machine, which is only $45,000, and the need for an fMRI machine, which is probably um, seven figures at least. Uh, who knows how many of those you know numbers are big in that one. And you know, I would say that if anybody here is really fascinated and wants to help out, you can contact her and and donate some money for this cause. I wish I had some because it's it's really quite interesting. Uh, you were telling us about your EEG machine, and I interrupted you. Can I continue with that thought, if you would, please, Sandra?
2: Yeah. Um, so, 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 yeah, so with this, this EEG equipment, we can measure um, um, when the brain does something and what exactly it is doing. Um, but besides measuring brain activation, it's also very important um, to get self-reports from people. So we also um, always ask them, uh, we give them questionnaires, or we make them ask uh, answer questions um, on a computer um, that ask them how they feel. Um, because the only way to figure out how someone feels, like how in love someone feels, or or how um, emotional someone feels, for example, is, is basically to, to ask them. Um, so self reports are also very valuable. So we use those too.
1: How do you go about designing your study? How do you set it up? How do you know what equipment to use? What you need to ask? I mean, research design is 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 quite intricate, actually.
2: Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, exactly. Well, so usually it starts with a question. Um, there's a research question. There's something that um, we don't know and that we would like to know um, how it works or whether something is the case. Um, and then you figure out um, what could you have the participants do to answer this question? So what sort of task are you going to have them do? Um what sort of um, um, stimuli, so, for example, pictures or words are you going to show them? Um, and then and then you're you're right. So research design is very um, intricate because we need to control for a lot of things. So just to give one example, um I often show my participant pictures of their beloved and a friend. And then I look at the difference, um, for example, in their brain activation or or their behavior on a task or their self-report. And the idea is that um, they know both people. They know their beloved. They know their friend. um, They also like both people. um, But they are in love with their beloved and not with their friend. So the idea is that the difference then between those two conditions um, is love. Um, But, of course, you have to take into account other differences, so we make sure that um the beloved and the friend, for example, are of the same gender uh, because if if people would submit a male beloved and a female friend, any difference could be the gender of the picture on the screen. So we have to be real careful to control of all sorts of variables that could um, affect our result if if that makes sense. Oh yeah, we're,
1: I want and I want to talk more about that um, as we go along. Mm-hmm. How do you find your participants? I know on the website it says you pay uh, for people mm-hmm. to participate, you grant credit for people to participate. Uh, and, and and you offer them the uh, um a, the option of seeing their own brainwaves and and I think most people would think that would be kind of fun or exciting or interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, what what brings them in more? The the pay the credit,
2: or, or the chance to see their own brainwaves? Um, so I think it's a mix. Um, so we recruit students, uh, mostly undergraduate students that are on campus already. Um, we recruit them to participate in our studies, and sometimes they can earn extra course credit by participating, um, um, or they can um, choose to earn money. Um, it's not a whole lot. Usually it's like $15, 20 $25 dollars. Um, something like that, um, and then of course we also use this incentive that they can look at their own brain waves. Just because, yeah, a lot of people find that fascinating, and it is kind of um, fun to have that cap on your head and then see on the screen what is happening in your brain right now. Um, oh,
1: so yeah. they can observe what the printout yep. or the you know the readout of what's happening. Yeah, well, yep. That's- they can
2: see. Yeah, they can see it happening on the screen in front of them.
0: Yep.
1: So you have all these people volunteer, but then you have to weed them out. You know what do you need to know about your participant to keep them as part of the study?
2: yeah, so the, so that varies between studies. um, but oftentimes we are looking for people that um have recently fallen in love. um that is, if we want to study this infatuation or passionate love um, stage. Um, So then we're looking for people that have fallen in love within the last six months or maybe the last year. Um, For another study that we're currently running, we're looking for people who are married. Um, Sometimes um, um, we are looking for people that are in a relationship. Um, So it it varies between studies. And then usually we're also looking for people that are uh, mentally healthy. So, for example, if people would have a depression, since we are interested in emotions and in love, it would be a problem to have someone in the sample who is depressed. So we, 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 we ask people um, if they have any mental mental illnesses, and then if so, they usually cannot participate, unfortunately. Um, but that also varies between studies. Um, do anyway. you
1: ever have both of of the pair, the, the man and the woman, and do them separately and compare their responses?
2: So usually we just <laughs> test um, one person, um now we're always looking for more participants so we usually we say well if you are in a relationship with this with your beloved can you also see if they may want to participate um but then we don't uh we don't really compare we don't really link their responses we are definitely not going to tell the other person about their responses on their questionnaires or on the task because that's obviously all very confidential um so yeah so my work does not study couples if you will it really it really um studies the the person on their own and their own love feelings.
1: Yeah, it would be interesting to see if both <laughs> if both people in a couple felt the same way or how they reacted to each other. Uh, it might cause some problems along the way, but it would would certainly be interesting.
2: <laughs> yeah, and and there is there is quite some research on couples on how they respond to each other and on how they interact with each other. Um, That that's just not what I do. But that's also very valuable research, of course, um, on love. Oh, I would
1: think so. Uh, With the EEG or, you know, if you had an MRI, Mm -hmm. can you tell the difference between the lust, the infatuation, and love, or do they show up the same?
2: Um, Well, that's a great question. I don't know if anyone has ever really compared those three love types um, in a single study. Um, The thing is, so most of my studies and and studies of a lot of scientists, we look at group averages. So we test, um, say, 20 participants or maybe more, and then we calculate the average brain activation across all those people, and then we say, well, this is what the brain does when people look at the picture of their beloved compared to when they look at the picture of their friend, for example. Um, and, and and that is is relatively easy to do. Um, now, what you're maybe asking is, if you look at someone's brain activation, can you tell how in love they are? Or if they feel lust or infatuation or passionate love or attachment or companionate love? And, and that's a very different question because now you have the brain activation of one person and now you want to classify them as in not in love or in love and, and what type of love they are feeling. And so... That's a very different question and a much harder question to answer.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, I would think uh, there might be a continuum. You start, may start out mm-hmm. with lust, move to infatuation, yep. and then it may really become more like love. Yep. I, you know, love is just uh, so hard to grab a hold of and, and say, yeah, this is a real love and, and this is not. Mm. I mean, this is infatuation. I don't know where you draw the line, actually, when you're doing a study.
2: Yep. I mean, yeah, and and you're right. These these three different types of love uh, they can occur independently. So you can feel sexual desire for someone without infatuation or attachment, um, but they can also overlap. So oftentimes, when people are infatuated, they also feel sexual desire for that same person. Um, yeah. So it's a it's a it's a real mix. Yep. Now, what what are
1: some of the the comments that people you've worked with as participants have said about that? Do they do they often get a surprise with the, with you know their own reaction, or are they you know saying, yeah, that's how I feel, that's you know my brain is showing what I really feel? Yeah. And what's their feedback?
2: Well, so so um, several times participants have asked me at the end of the study, and could you tell me how in love I uh, I am? Um, And then I always have to tell them, um, no, I can't, uh, because I I normally only look at the group average, so I usually don't even look at people's, like, individual person's data. Um, And then I I always tell them, well, you know how in love you are. (laughs) Yes. You don't need me to tell you that. Um, So And that surprises people, I think. Yeah.
1: How many people do you need to interview to... Uh, get the you know the the, the right n- number of responses. Mm-hmm. I'm blocking up the word I want to use, but what's a good sample?
2: Yep. So so that again varies between studies. It varies on the method we're using and the question that we're asking. Um, for EEG studies, the minimum is is about 20 people per group. Um, so if I am comparing people that are in a relationship um, to people that are currently heartbroken, I would need 20 people in a relationship and 20 people that are heartbroken. Um, at least um, 25 is better, uh, 30 would be great. Um, but if we do a questionnaire study that we've recently done, we're looking at hundreds of people, like 200 or 300. Um, so it varies between studies. and And usually, more is better, but it's also more expensive. So we need to make a a balance between um, what is enough to, to do this research.
1: Right. It's time for us to take another break. When we come back, I'd really like to take a look, um, just a brief look, at those who are heartbroken. I, it's something that I think we probably all experienced and, and probably everybody listening to this show is thinking, Oh, I'd like to know about the heartbreak and what it shows up, how it shows up on an EEG. So let's go to break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what happens in the brain when you're heartbroken. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
4: Do you or somebody you love have a struggle with abuse? You don't need to be a slave to your abuse anymore. Listen for Beyond Abuse, Beyond Therapy, Beyond Anything with Dr. Lisa Cooney. Dr. Lisa overcame struggles in her own life. Two decades of sexual, emotional, and physical abuse nearly took their toll. In her 20s, she turned her life around and set upon a path to help others. She can help you find the key to take control of your life, too. Listen every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. How do you define work? Is it that mundane Monday through Friday place that seems to be sucking a third of your life out of you? Or have you made it a place of personal fulfillment, achievement, and purpose? If you are looking to make your work life the latter, tune in to Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. There are all kinds of inspiring work life stories told by people who have made work something to look forward to every day. Working on Purpose can be heard every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Empowerment.
1: Welcome back to the Self-Improvement Show. Our guest today is Dr. Sandra Longenschlag, who is doing studies on love uh, and the cognitive effects uh, of love in the brain. We were talking before the break um, about people who come to the studies and the studies that she does, and she mentioned that sometimes she works... With our studies people who have experienced heartbreak, And I'd really like to talk about that. What shows up in the EEG when she looks at her beloved or he looks at his beloved after heartbreak? Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> so, so yeah, we I've done um one study on heartbreak, and we're currently working on a second study. And um, this may be surprising, but we compared people that were in a romantic relationship with people that were heartbroken, and we showed them pictures of their beloved or or their ex um, partner, and there weren't that many differences in brain activation. Um, so we were so their at the brain, brain still responds as loving. Um, so we were measuring a brain wave that measures attention. And um, so these groups, both groups of people, um, have a lot of attention for their beloved or or their ex-partner, more than for um, neutral pictures. Um, And this kind of makes sense because um, we know from research that people pay attention to information that is emotional, regardless of whether it is positive or negative. So the people that were in a relationship said they felt very good when they looked at these pictures. And their brainwaves showed that they paid a lot of attention to these pictures, um, and then the people that were heartbroken um, said they didn't feel good at all. Um, they were very sad and they felt very negative. Um, but they were still paying a lot of attention to these pictures, but now probably because it made them—they made them feel bad. Um,
1: if you yeah. had the fMRI machine and could study it on the, uh, you know. Mm-hmm on film or not on film anymore but uh, as a digital readout how what do you think there would be a difference in the part of the brain that's affected between heartbroken broken and loving
2: so so there there will be a difference um if you look at all brain activation because obviously people feel different like i said people that are in a relationship oh, yeah. feel very happy when they see their beloved and people that are no longer in a relationship, um, may not feel happy at all when they see their beloved. Um, so there must be um, some difference in brain activation. Uh, it's just a question of whether we'll be able to, to, um, to observe it.
1: <laughs> it's interesting to me that uh, you can find people who are willing to say they're heartbroken
2: mm-hmm.
1: and will, will be open enough to participate in a study about it. Yep. Uh, yeah, so how do you the, find them? Do you, mm-hmm. Can you get enough participants in the, in the university uh, population? I'm sure that probably by the time they get to be a college student, they've experienced some form of heartbreak. But do you have to go outside the university to get those?
2: Yeah, so for that study, we, we, did, go, we did use Craigslist because we did anticipate that we would not get enough uh, participants by just re- recruiting from our students. Um, so for the latest heartbreak study, we actually used Craigslist to recruit people that we just said, are you heartbroken? Then come to our lab and at least earn some money um, with your heartbreak. Um, and so, yeah, we're very grateful um, that these people are willing um, to then participate in our research. And and that must not have been fun, because we asked them to submit about 30 pictures of their ex. So they had to go through old pictures to find pictures that were suitable. Oh, um, Yeah, then they come in the lab and they have to answer all these questions about how do you feel and did they break up with you or did you break up with them? Um, so so yeah, that must not have been fun. So we, we um, upped the payment a little bit. <laughs>
1: I, I would think so. So yeah. you're showing pictures of the beloved and you're showing pictures of a friend.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So does that friend... It just has to be a male friend or female friend, you know, whichever gender the beloved is. What about people they don't know? Do you put anybody they don't know that Mm -hmm. still is attractive or kind of like uh, the beloved?
2: Yeah. So how does that that look uh, on the EEG? Yeah, so in, in some studies we have also shown people strangers Um, And so then we would also show them, so if they uh, had a female beloved, they would give us also a female friend, then we would show them a female stranger. And if this is just a neutral stranger, someone they don't know, someone who doesn't, has a neutral facial expression when they're on the picture, then the brain doesn't respond very strongly to this picture because it's basically a very boring picture. Someone you don't know who looks very neutral. Yeah, who Um, cares? Yeah. Right, exactly. Um, in other studies, we have shown them a very ast- attractive stranger. So these were actually photographs made by other researchers who had um, averaged faces that people said were um, pretty enough to be models. And so they averaged a number of photographs that were all sort of model quality. And what you did end up with is a sort of a super attractive face, um, and so we use that as the the stranger in one of my studies. Um, but the interesting thing is <laughs> that people who were not in love said this stranger was really attractive. I even distinctly remember one participant saying, wow, the perfect woman exists. Um, and then I thought, oh, no, this is a computer-generated face. She doesn't actually <laughs> exist. <laughs> um, but the people that were in love... Um, they said that their beloved was super attractive and they were not impressed by this attractive stranger at all. Um, So how did the
1: beloved compare with the attractive stranger? Was sometimes the beloved not so good looking, Mm -hmm. but the one who's loving sees them as Mm -hmm. attractive
2: regardless? Yeah, Yeah, so we had all these pictures evaluated by other people that didn't know who they were. Um, and, and they said those beloved and friends were, were average uh, in attractiveness, which makes sense because these, these are just um, random people. Um, and those those computer-generated faces were, were very attractive. Um, but then when we asked the participants who were in love to rate their beloved as the friend and the attractive stranger, they all said their beloved was super attractive and they weren't impressed by that attractive stranger at all. So, and that's not a
3: surprise,
2: is it? Right, so that's basically uh, scientific proof for the saying um, "love is blind." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we all think our beloved is the most attractive person on earth, while objectively speaking, they are not. But um, it's it's a, and it's, that's it's, how a, it should be. Exactly, <laughs> is, I, I don't yes. think that's that's um, unhealthy. I think it's healthy to think that. <laughs>
1: Oh, I think you better think that or (laughs) or down the line you might have a little trouble. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You say in an article in Fortune magazine, there may be a lot of things you can't control about love. But when it comes to the intensity with which you feel it, there's some amount of fine tuning that can be done. Mm-hmm. What kind of fine-tuning are you talking about? And then let's talk a little bit about how we can go about doing that fine-tuning. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, so so I've done a study to see if people could change how in love they are, uh, because sometimes that may come in handy, because sometimes people are um uh, more in love than they want to be. For example, if the other person doesn't love them back or just broke up with them, or maybe it's like the wrong person that you're not supposed to be in love with, like your boss or something like that. Um And so sometimes people are also less in love than they may want to be in love. Um, for example, in long-term relationships, we know that love feelings decline over time and that is sometimes th- the reason for a breakup. Um, so there are all these situations in which, in which people may want to change how in love they are. They may want to become a little bit more in love or a little bit less in love, depending on the situation. Um, and so I wanted to study if people can do that. Um, but first I studied whether people think they can change how in love they are. Um, because uh-huh. oftentimes people think they, they can't. You know, you're either in love or you're not, and, and what do you do? Um, so I I had some questionnaires, and it's it showed that people... Um, indeed, think that love regulation or so changing how in love you are is is, is very difficult, if not impossible to do. Um, but then I actually, in the lab, gave them this task where they had to think about either positive aspects of their beloved. So, for example, my beloved is so funny or um, he or she is so um, um, attractive, so beautiful um, or positive aspects of the relationship. Like we have so much fun together. Um, or positive future scenarios like we'll get married and we'll live happily ever after. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and when people thought about these positive things, that did increase their love feelings a little bit. So even though they thought they couldn't control how in love they were, um, when I had them think these specific things, they, they felt a little bit more in love. Um, and then I also had them do the opposite, where they thought about negative things about their beloved, so he uh, never puts his socks in a hamper, um, or <laughs> negative things about the relationship, um, like we fight a lot, um, or negative future scenarios, like one day this person is going to cheat on me, for example. And that actually decreased how in love they were. Um, so I showed that there's, and, and these effects were not that big, like it's not like an on or off switch um, but if you think these positive or negative things, you can slightly tune how in love you are.
1: And my mind is boggled with wondering how on earth you measure that. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so, so yeah, so we use self-reports. So we just ask them, we have them, um, first we have them do a baseline task where they just look at the pictures and then we ask them, well, how infatuated are you now? How attached are you now? And then we have them do these tasks and then we ask them, well, and how do you feel right now? Um, but these this love regulation, um, thinking these certain things, also changed how the brain responded to um, to those pictures of the beloved. So that was a more objective measure that this love regulation indeed um, has an effect.
1: Interesting. Do you find that some participants who say they love a certain person don't really show that on the EEG? Do, they, do you have anybody who says they're in love that are kind of a flat line on the EEG? Mm.
2: Yeah, so, so it's, it's hard to look at the data of an individual person because there's a lot of noise in the EEG. Um, if people blink their eyes, it distorts the signal. If they move, um, it distorts the signal. Even the, the lights in the room distort the signal a little bit. Um, so that's why we usually look at the group level and then you, you average all the noise out and then you are left with the, the real signal, if you will. Um, so if you just look at a single person's brainwaves, it may look flat, but it, yeah, you don't really know what that means.
1: Yeah, right. It's time for us to take another break. When we come back, we're going to talk more about the findings of the studies on what happens uh, in the brain, when you're in love, we'll be right back with more with Dr. Sandra Loganschlong. So stay tuned.
3: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com/forward/slash/voiceamerica. Are you in your own driver's seat? Tune in to a program that will get you there based on what others have managed to do through challenges in their lives and how they persevered. Tune in to The Real Deal with Danielle Delaney. On our show, we use real issues and experts to help you reclaim your life. Danielle and her guests are here to steer you in the right direction. Make sure that you are here every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. It's time to harness your power.
0: You are tuned in to The Self-Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Got a question for Irene or her guests? Call into our live show at 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Connect with Irene via email. Our address is the Self Blog at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to the self-improvement show. Here again is Dr. Irene Conlon.
1: Welcome back to the self-improvement show. My guest today is Dr. Sandra Longenschlag of the University of Missouri at St. Louis. She's been talking to us about what happens in the brain when you're in love. Uh, And I find these studies really quite fascinating. Uh, One of the questions that I have had over a period of time actually, and now that you can study it, do you see significant differences in the brainwaves of those who are newly in love as opposed to those who have been married for a number of years i know you look at groups and if you compared these groups what would what would you
2: see mm-hmm. yeah so that's a great question so um i have not directly compared the two but uh, but i can tell you what i would expect um So when people are newly in love, so when they are infatuated or um, they still feel passionate love, um, that is a very arousing state. And by arousing, I mean it's very activating. So people feel like they have a lot of energy. Um, They may have a reduced appetite. Um, They may have trouble sleeping just because they're so excited. Um, And so they're also often very nervous when they're around their beloved. Um, Whereas people that have been... Together for a long time, and so that have more entered the attachment or the companionate love uh, stage. Um, one important characteristic of that stage is that it's it's actually very calming, so it's very low arousing. Um, so, so for example, if you've been together with your beloved for a long time, um, if something upsetting happens at work, you will actually go to your beloved and they will probably be able to calm you down. Whereas if it was a, a new beloved, you had recently fallen in love, you, you wouldn't go to them with something upsetting because being with them would would not calm you down at all. <laughs> um, so, so um, for example, people that are sort of newly in love pay a lot of attention to their beloved, but it has to do with the arousal because that information is so exciting um and i expect people that have been together for a long time that they will also still pay attention to their spouse their their long-term partner um but that will more be because of familiarity because they're so familiar with this this person and they feel good when they're with them but but not because of because the information is so exciting does that make sense it makes perfect
1: sense. Lyle Lovett has a song called "What Do You Do When It Stops Being New," mm-hmm. and I'm wondering if those couples who have grown complacent—you know, it's like, mm-hmm. you know, okay, so you're here, so what? Mm-hmm. Attitude. And I—I've seen these. Um, well, how would that show up? Or have you seen this uh, as as you studied married couples? Have you seen? Mm-hmm. You know, less activity in the brain waves when it's like oh ho hum relationship.
2: Yeah. So, um, um, so so yes, you definitely would expect the brain to be less active, um, in response to, for example, the picture of a spouse compared to a picture um, of someone that you like fell in love with with like last month or so. Um, The the thing is, um, these declining love feelings over time, so most people have probably experienced that um, this infatuation or passionate love decreases over time, and and sometimes that's that's good because you wouldn't want those butterflies distracting you from your work for the rest of your life. Um, So so those definitely decline over time, and then um, attachment or companionate love usually typically grows over time, Um, but... Other research has shown that in very long-term relationships, so so very long marriages, also these feelings of attachment, unfortunately, also decline over time, uh, like over the course of decades. Um, So that's a little bit sad. Um, But I think it would be good if people realized that that is normal, um, so that love feelings declining over time are common and doesn't necessarily mean um, you shouldn't be together. Um, And then there are things um, that people can do to actually sort of ignite the passion again to maybe stop them from declining or make them decline less quickly, um, such as thinking about these positive things, um, but also, for example, um, undertaking new activities together, so going to new theater shows or visiting new cities or um, working out together or maybe bungee jumping together. Um, so <laughs> if, you, if you do these new and exciting things together with your partner, that can sort of keep the, li- the love um, alive.
1: And you state, and I don't remember whether I found this in an article or whether I uh, got it off your website or where, but you state you can decide if and when you want to make your feelings of love more or less intense. Mm -hmm. So go on and take control of your love life. How do you go about teaching people to take control of their love
2: life? And are counselors aware of these findings? Right so so I have done um a, a first study on this love regulation idea so I've shown that people think it's not possible but then if you ask them to do it they can do it um so we're going to have to do a lot more research to figure out um, how can people apply this in their daily life? Um, how long do these effects last? How how often do you have to think these things? Like, you, would you have to think it every five minutes, or is once a day enough, or, or, or maybe once a week? Um, so there's still a lot of work to do before I can and before I can really uh, sort of put together like a training program. Like, this is how you go about it.
1: Right. Um, you know, my <laughs> thing, my thought was when you were saying that that maybe you have to think these thoughts and add some positive emotion to it if you're really trying to build up your feelings mm-hmm. or some negative emotion to it if you want to decrease the right. feelings because basically don't you need to have some emotion to make the thought more powerful
0: mhm
2: yeah, yeah that's it. true yep um so yeah so I have a lot more work to do but in the meantime people can definitely um experiment with thinking these positive or negative things and see if it if it makes a difference for them and if it if it helps them Um, And the the advantage of this love regulation idea is that um, you don't need the other, the partner or your beloved to be on board. So especially if if this person broke up with you, they may not even want to talk to you anymore. So so this is something you can do regardless of whether the other person wants to help you um, increase or decrease your love feelings. Um, So I think that's an advantage um, to this love regulation idea.
1: Oh, I think it I think it's a, a great advantage. Most people don't think they can get over their brokenheartedness. Mm-hmm. And if they know that, you know, a, a program of of cognition, I guess,
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: thinking about it, putting some emotion to detaching from that person, that the healing can take place a little faster. I, yeah, I think I, that, that's a great finding. Are there other practical applications of your research findings?
2: Um, So I think that's the main one. Um, I'm still working on this. I'm studying um, whether love distracts you from other tasks and how that uh, exactly works. So that's still a very new research line that I have to do a lot lot more work of. But then ultimately, of course, we also want to see how can we... Help people not be so distracted because maybe you are very much infatuated with someone, but maybe it's finals week and you really need to study. Um, so, what could you do to, to help you focus on your exams and not be distracted? <laughs> oh, I, by bet,
1: I bet some college students would pay you big money to tell them how to do that. <laughs> right.
2: Wouldn't it be yeah, great if you could pause it for a week, do your thing, and then, um, yeah, hang out with your beloved again?
1: Yeah but but you know, the absence that makes the heart grow fonder during final right. times can mm-hmm. can be a big roadblock. We're yeah. right up to the end of the show. Uh, Sandra, what's the thought you'd like to leave with our listeners today?
2: Mhm. So so I guess if you would summarize my research it would be that um love changes the way you think. So love changes cognition and it can, and it can be positive. It can improve your cognition, but it can also um hurt your cognition. But also the way we think can change how in love we are. So cognition can also infect affect love. Um, so I think if if people uh, would remember that, I think they understood the, this whole conversation.
1: It's <laughs> fascinating study. Thank you so much for being with us today. I uh, encourage people to go look at your uh, bio and contact you. Your email no, your email address is not there, but they can find you. You know, if they have questions, yes, I want to definitely. thank our engineer, Aaron, today for keeping us going and uh, invite the listeners to come back again next week. Sandra, thank you so much. Thank
2: you for having me.
1: Thank you to the listeners and come back again next week for more of the self-improvement show.
0: Thank you again for joining Dr. Irene Conlon for the Self-Improvement Show. Please listen again next Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Remember that improvement out there starts in here.